And good morning once again, and once again, happy Mom's Day. Good to see all you moms. Can I have you turn me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 4? If you're new with us this morning, we welcome you and let you know that we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. Now, when you find chapter 4, just kind of put your finger there, just look up here for a minute. Those of you who are athletes or were athletes, the older I get, the better I was, but... Um, you know, if you're into athletics, you know that many times professional athletes who are masters in their sport will put out an instructional video to help others become more proficient in things like tennis or golf or some other sport. In fact, I remember many years ago when I was still in high school uh, that professional golfer Jack Nicklaus, um, he had recently won the Masters Golf Tournament, and he put out such a video. Uh, entitled Golf My Way. And the purpose of the video was to teach others the secret of winning golf through the style of Jack Nicholas. This morning we have before us an example, or a sample I guess, not of a person winning the Masters, <laughs> but of the Master winning a person. And I believe if we study this passage carefully in John 4 of Jesus, as he wins, he's the Master, as he wins someone to himself, if we study his approach, his style, his technique, if you will, I think it will help us to become more effective as we witness to others about him as we watch the master in action. So let's uh, start with verse 1. Now we've already looked at uh, most of chapter 4 over the last couple of weeks, but there's so much here. I want to go back a couple more times uh, to um, pull out some more topical messages, but let's go back to verse 1. It says, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Now, as we have uh, said the last couple of studies in John 4, the Jews hated the Samaritans and would never set foot in their land. If they had to go from Jerusalem north to Galilee or from Galilee south to Jerusalem, the quickest way to go was right through Samaria. But they hated the Samaritans so much they wouldn't do that. So they'd either go west and take the Via Maris, uh, the road up the Mediterranean coast, uh, the Mediterranean sea coast, or they would go east, cross over the Jordan, go up through Perea uh, and Decapolis, uh, and then cross back over into Israel, uh, bypassing Samaria altogether. So when we read in John 4 that Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria, there's only one reason I can think of as to why he needed to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. It was because he had an appointment with a woman of Samaria and uh, who was thirsty in her soul for living water. Now, if you weren't here the last couple of weeks, we developed this at length. You can go online and listen if you'd like. But before we go on to our first point, and I've entitled this message, Evangelism, the Master's Way. Before we get to our first point, understand what Jesus said was the reason he came to the earth. Luke 19, verse 10, he said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Mark 2, 17, he said to them, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Guys, if we're going to save sinners, if we're going to follow Jesus' example, and we're going to save sinners, then we must seek them, which means we must go to where they are. Now, be careful. I'm not talking about going into dens of iniquity. I'm just saying we need to get out of our comfort zone and start hanging out with some unbelievers, not for the purpose of fellowship, but just to have contact with them. You know, this is a great place, okay? A lot of light in here because it's a church. And we enjoy each other's company. We love to study the word, which is light, right? We love to sing worship to the Lord. But unbelievers typically won't come to us here at church. Sometimes, but not often. Uh, we have to go to where they are. It reminds me of the story of a guy who was walking up the street one night and sees a guy uh, about maybe half a block in front of him uh, under a street light, looking down at the ground, obviously looking for something. So he walks up and says, friend, what's going on? He goes, well, I'm looking for a lost coin. Well, let me help you. Uh, where do you think you lost it exactly? Uh, up the road about a block. Well, then why are you down here looking and not up there? So, because the light's better here. <laughs> hey, the light's better here. But the lost typically hang out in the darkness, okay? Not in the church. And so with that in mind, we come to the first point in our outline of the master's approach to evangelism. Listen, go to where the sinners are and make contact. Verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, Jesus establishes contact with this, with this lost woman by finding some common ground with her, something they mutually had in common, which in this case was the need for water. Jesus met this woman at her point of need, physical need, and then used it to elevate her thinking to her real need, which was spiritual. But notice how. Notice how he made contact with her. He asked her for help. In this case, for a drink from Jacob's well. Guys, the quickest way to get people to drop their guard is to ask for their help in some way. Uh, to ask for their input maybe with some problem that you may have. Uh, or again, just to help them, ask to help them with some little thing that you need help with. So often, and we don't mean it, but so often when we uh, witness to uh, unbelievers, we kind of give off the impression that we're maybe better than them, that we're above them. Now, we don't mean to, but here's the problem. See, we have something they need. We become salesmen for Jesus in a sense, Right? When you have a salesperson, and they're really good at being a salesman or saleswoman, they really are enthusiastic about their product, and they're convinced you need this product for whatever reason to find happiness or whatever it might be, right? And sometimes they may come on a little strong because they really believe what they have is something you really need. Sometimes as Christians, we can do that with unbelievers, in our zeal to see them saved, we know Jesus is not a product, but he is what the, they need. He's the answer to whatever problem they have. 
So we come on maybe a little strong. And we overpower them, and it takes them back a little bit. Because, you know, we kind of give the impression they have nothing to offer us. They have nothing to contribute to us. But we have what they need to fix their messed up life. And so that makes them, you know, kind of takes them back, puts them on the defensive. To borrow a Star Trek concept, their shields go up. You ain't getting through now, okay? Again, the quickest way to make people feel you're not above them is to ask them for their help, their input. Now, listen, they feel somewhat superior. Now, you're not taking the teaching role, which is always the superior role to the student. Now, you're taking the subordinate role. You're asking them for their help. That makes them feel kind of superior, kind of special, causes them to lower their guard. And uh, whenever somebody helps you, they invest time and energy into you, now there's a connection. There's kind of a vested interest in you. There's a connection which often leads to an open door to share Jesus. So verse 9, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, if you weren't here, a couple of weeks ago, we really looked at this and why the Jews and, for the most part, the Samaritans had no dealings with each other, okay? Especially the Jews, though, did not like the Samaritans. You'll have to dig that out and you'll see why uh, th- that was the feeling. But when she said, look, the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, folks, that was one of the great understatements in the Bible. Let me just read you what one author said. He summed it up this way. He said, The Jews typically regarded the Samaritans as unclean apostates. Shortly after this incident, the Jews made a law stating that the daughters of the Samaritans are menstruants from their cradle and therefore were perpetually unclean. The Pharisees prayed that no Samaritan would be raised in the resurrection. And when Jesus, when Jesus' enemies wanted to insult him, they called him a Samaritan, end quote. Now, the normal social conventions of that day prohibited public conversation between men and women, even husbands and wives. And the rabbis, pardon the pun, adhered to that religiously. So for a Jewish rabbi, that's what Jesus was. He was even wearing, as we said last week, the robe of a rabbi with the blue hem around the bottom, right? She knew he was a Jewish rabbi from what he was wearing. For a Jewish rabbi to to speak to uh, a woman in public, not to mention a defiled Samaritan woman, and then on top of all of that, to ask her to help him with something, was off the chart shocking and unorthodox. So much so, well, it's, this is why she was taken back by Jesus' request. The word dealings there in verse 9, you Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The Greek word is sunkrantai, and it literally means to use vessels together. And that culture to share a meal with somebody and to drink out of the same cup from it was um, 
a deep expression of friendship and oneness. And guys, no self-respecting Jew would ever want that with a Samaritan. And so when she asks, when he asks her, could you give me a drink using your vessel, of course, your, your pot, water pot, uh, to, that I may drink out of, she was shocked beyond measure, okay? And that's why she responds incredulously, I'll paraphrase, you want to drink from my vessel? You want to drink from my vessel? But look, Jesus was no respecter of persons. I mean, he loves everybody the same, whether they're Jew or Gentile, black or white, uh, rich or poor, uh, famous, uh, unknown. He loves everyone equally and wants to see all men and women come to him for salvation. Which leads us to our second main point in the master's approach to evangelism. He first of all makes contact with her and then, listen, he stimulates her curiosity. Again, Jesus meets this gal on common ground. Again, they were both thirsty for water. You might meet somebody on common ground through a common interest or a common hobby. Maybe you like golf or something, right? Um, There's all kinds of ways you can connect with somebody. Look for the common ground, whatever it might be. This Jesus was a master at this, right? So verse 10 says, Then Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So that's how Jesus created curiosity in this woman. Mutual, their mutual thirst for water, he uses that, okay, to create this curiosity for living water. But how might this look when we evangelize somebody? Well, let me just give you one example that I thought of. Say a, a co-worker comes to you one day and says, look, after work today, we're going to go out to this bar, have a drink, or we're going to celebrate so-and-so's retirement. Why don't you come with us? And you respond, well, thank you very much for the invitation, but I, I don't drink. Now, they probably will say, well, why not? But even if they don't, you quickly follow that up by saying, look, I used to drink, but it was a real problem in my life. And after I became a Christian, the Lord uh, set me free. He broke the hold alcohol had on me. Now, of course, if you've never had a problem with alcohol, you can say something else. Uh, Just a lot of people have had problems with alcohol in their lives. And uh, since most people in our society do drink, to have someone say to them in a polite, respectful way, look, thanks for the invitation, but I just don't drink. Uh, And the reason is I used to. You know, you're not putting them down. You're not, you know, say, well, I have never drunk in my life. I grew up in church. And, you know, that's the kind of thing. A lot of Christians, you know, go that route. Uh, you know. But I, but I, I, I used to drink. It, but it became a problem. It was a real problem for me. And once I became a Christian, God took it away from me. 
Now you've piqued their curiosity, haven't you? And often that will lead to an open door to share your testimony and ultimately the gospel with them. Now let me just stop and say this. There are Christians who would say to you, um, hey, go out with them to the bar. Not to drink, but have a Coke. But go out with them to the bar. You're going to show them you're not some holy roller. You're one of the guys. You're one of the gals, you know. And, and you go out with them. And, and that way, you know, they'll have an, you'll have an open door. You can share Jesus with them maybe at, at this bar and so on. I would advise against that. Especially if you've had a problem with alcohol. You shouldn't be going anywhere near a bar, okay? Let me just say this, though. When people are in a group, a group that is going to a bar for the sole purpose of celebrating something with alcohol, that is not the most conducive environment to share the gospel with them. Why? First of all, you got the group dynamic going on. And when people are in a group, they're not open. They're not open. Too much peer pressure, okay? You can get them alone. That's better, much better. Uh, but, you know, and secondly, when they're going to a place to celebrate or party, that's what they're focusing on. That's what their mindset's all about. They're not thinking about anything else but having a good time. So what you do is, I think it's more powerful with us to say, thank you very much. But I don't, I don't drink, and here's why, okay? And, uh, but thank them, obviously, and uh, just excuse yourself without making any critical or condescending remarks about drinking, okay? It, it, it's not, a, too many Christians feel it's their, it's their responsibility to bring, you know, to, to, to let everybody know the evils of everything. That may come. That, that time may come. Right now, you're just simply making contact, wanting to create a curiosity for what you have, Okay? So Jesus meets this woman on common ground and uses her physical thirst for water, something she knew very well, of course, to teach her about the inward or the spiritual thirst in her soul. In other words, her thirst for God. You know, guys, as you study the Gospels, Jesus had, was a master. Again, we're looking at the master, right? Jesus was a master, the master, of meeting people common ground and um, at the point of their physical need and then elevating their understanding, their thinking to their greatest need, which wasn't physical, it was spiritual. I mean, to this thirsty woman, he said, I'll give you living water. To the self-righteous Pharisee named Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. To a professional fisherman named Peter, he said, I'll make you a fisher of men. To Martha, standing by the tomb of her dead brother, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. To the man born blind, he said, I am the light of the world. And to the hungry crowd, he said, I am the bread from heaven. And you see this all over the Gospels. Our Lord was a master of meeting people on the level of the physical and using it to teach them about their truest need, which was spiritual, in other words, their need for eternal life. I mean, to me, I don't know about you, it's exciting to watch the master in operation. I, I, I learned so much from studying Jesus, the way he handled people, the way he even shared the gospel. And so after Jesus 
stimulates her curiosity. Now, listen, she is open to hearing and wanting to hear about this magical living water. She is open now to hearing what he has to say. And this leads then to the third main point in our outline, the conversation. The conversation, verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have said well, for you've had five husbands. And you and the one that you are uh, now living with is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Now up until this point, guys, I imagine that she was acting kind of cutesy and flirtatious with the Lord. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. You know, that was just her way with men. That, that was just who she was. As we said, she was probably the town flirt. She had probably busted up a few marriages in town. That's where the women didn't want anything to do with her, right? And um, this is the way she kind of talked with men. And uh, there was no reason for us to assume she was being any different with uh, Jesus as she was conversing with him. Of course, his only interest in her was her salvation. All her little cutesy flattery fell on deaf ears with him. Instead, the Lord opens his gospel presentation with some penetrating words. In fact, these words are uh, really the gift of the word of knowledge and operation, which the Holy Spirit revealed to the Lord uh, information about this woman. He didn't know her, but the Holy Spirit revealed to the Lord supernatural with the gift of the word of knowledge is about we just studied this uh, a couple weeks ago on wednesday night but it's supernatural information a little piece of divine revelation that god will give to us when we're going to witness to somebody or to pray for them and so on and so the lord speaks to her with penetrating words designed to bring conviction into her heart now look no one can receive eternal life who isn't first brought face to face with the reality of their own sinfulness and need for a savior and guys listen conviction is where this realization begins a lot of times people don't even know they, they need a savior everybody in our culture thinks they're a good person you talk to people on the street hey you know what do you, what happens to you when you die i'm going to go to heaven why i'm a good person in fact that's why i like the ray comfort approach to evangelism so much when we go out and we, you know, we stop people, usually two or three, you know, because people are usually not alone. But you stop you know, someone or a couple of people and uh, say, look, we're, uh, you know, some Christians um, from a church in the area. Hey, we're just out asking people some questions about, uh, about God. Can we ask you a few questions? Sure. Okay, fine. If you were to die tonight, where would you go? I'd go to heaven. Why? because I'm a good person. So you believe when you die, you stand before God and he would tell you, come on in because you're a good person, right? Yes, I believe that. All right, well, can I ask you a few questions? Well, sure. Have you ever lied? Well, sure, who hasn't? What does that make you? I guess a liar. Have you ever stolen anything, maybe even a piece of gum when you were a kid? Well, yeah. Well, what does that make you? I guess a thief. You ever lusted after somebody? Well, sure, who hasn't? You know, Jesus said to lust after another person in your heart is to commit adultery with them. Based on these things, 
When you stand before God, do you think he say you were a good person or a guilty person? I guess he'd say I was a guilty person. you think he would let you into heaven or have to send you to hell? I guess he'd send me to hell. Does that bother you? Well, yeah. All right, then I've got good news for you. See, now you've brought conviction. Before that, they're convinced they're a good person, they're going to heaven. They, they, you know, they may give Jesus lip service, but honestly, in their heart, they're going to get to heaven because they're a good person in their mind. We as Christians know that's not true. Nobody's good, the Bible says. We're all sinners. But until a person is made to understand how God really sees them. Now, he loves them, and that's why we see, I've got good news. God loves you and doesn't want you to go to hell. But we want them to understand they're not good people. They're guilty before a holy and righteous God, and he has to send them to hell unless they receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. That conviction, right? But notice how, you know, <laughs> when Christians learn this, sometimes they become John the Baptist, and they're screaming, you know, sinners repent! Well, you know, I don't see that's how Jesus handled people, okay? I mean, notice how gentle and loving he is with this woman as he confronts her with her sin. It reminds us of what he said to Nicodemus earlier in chapter 3, verse 17. He said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And this is how the Lord Jesus treats all sinners, with love, compassion, not with condemnation. Now when he comes the second time, first time he came to save sinners, and not to condemn, but to reach out with love and compassion and even conviction. When he comes again, he will come as a judge. All right, But right now, we are operating under his first coming. And in the first coming, he tells us to go into all the world, share the gospel, but love people. Love them. Okay? And he lovingly convicts this woman of her sin. Now look, once he exposes her sin to her <laughs> and she realized that she's in the presence of a man of God she doesn't know it's God the man but that's coming okay once she knows that this is not just a guy from the neighborhood or visiting this is a man of God and he tells her some of the things going on in her life I got the impression she feels like if he knows this he must know everything and he's she was right okay <clears throat> But once she realizes that, who this was. And he's kind of laid bare her life. Well, she asks the question that was really burning in her heart. Guys, this is a question that reveals the emptiness that was inside of her. A question that tells us that she was searching. And now she reveals that deep down inside she, she is searching for God. The problem was she didn't know where to go to find him. She said in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now, it's interesting to me that as soon as she discovers that this man was a prophet of God, this question comes rushing from her lips. I'll paraphrase where can I go to find God? I'm convinced a lot of unbelievers who are searching for God and visit church after church 
and really don't sense he's in there, would ask many of us the same question. Where can I go to find God? I mean, today you, you'd be shocked if I had the time to tell you what people say to me about what's out there when it comes to churches now. It's amazing the day we're living in. Where can I go to find God? This was, guys, a hot theological controversy, a running uh, argument going on back then between the Jews and the Samaritans. You see, the Jews said that on top of Mount Moriah, the place where Solomon built the temple, that was the only legitimate place where God could be worshipped. That was in Jerusalem. The Samaritans had built a temple to Yahweh on top of Mount Gerizim in Samaria. Now, it was destroyed in 128 B.C., but they still maintained that Gerizim was the only place where God could rightfully and acceptably be worshipped. So she is genuinely confused, all right, as to which one of the two was the place where God could be found and properly worshipped. Now, let me just stop and say this. As we're talking about Jesus' approach to evangelism, I must point out that many believe as Jesus confronted her with her sin, she got convicted and tried to change the subject right here by bringing up a theological controversy. Now, I've seen this happen numerous times um, over the years when I've been witnessing to unbelievers. Is as soon as you start revealing to them the fact that they're not good people, they're actually sinners based on the way they're living, often they immediately want to change the subject. And the way they do this is to bring up some hot-button you know, theological issue or controversy, like evolution. Well, you know, you, you, you're telling me the Bible's God's word, but science has proven evolution. Eh, no. But that's the prevailing mindset out there, isn't it? The Bible's, science is a proven evolution, therefore the Bible is not God's word, therefore it can't be trusted, and there you go. Or, if God is such a good and loving God, then why does he allow evil and suffering in the world? Now, that's not a bad question, but don't get roped into that, okay? Not, not at this moment. Over the years, I've had people try to change the subject by asking questions like, where did Cain get his wife? Did Adam have a belly button? And can God make a rock so big he can't pick it up? Now that last one, i got to tell you. When I've heard that, I didn't say it because you want to keep things nice. I'm thinking the only rock right now is the one between your ears. But here, let me exp- No, God can't make a rock big enough he can't pick up. See now, they, and they have to say to you, so, oh, then he can't do everything, can he? You say he's almighty, but, but he can't do that. No, he can't do everything. What? You're saying God can't do everything? No, he can't do everything. In fact, I'll go one further. I can do things that God can't do. <gasps> now I know you're crazy. No. No. I can lie. God can't lie. I can act immorally. God can't act immorally. But you know what? Can God make a rock so big he can't pick it up? That has nothing to do with your eternity. Okay? Nothing to do with your eternity. But this is the natural tendency of someone who's being convicted by the Holy Spirit through your gospel presentation. Listen, they often try to deflect the conviction by changing the conversation onto some controversial religious topic. What do you think about that Shroud of Turin? Huh? You think that's real? 
you know, right now I don't care about the, the Shroud of Turin. And by the way, no, I don't think it's real. You want to know why? Come up afterward, I'll tell you. Years ago, I was witnessing to a friend of mine. I'd known him for years, and I'd gotten saved. And so we were together at his house, and I was trying to witness to him. And as soon as I started talking about the Bible and stuff like that, right away, evolution. He, he was, uh, thought he knew a lot about everything. Right away, brought evolution. And say just what I told you. Well, you know, scientists have proven evolution is true. So you tell me the Bible is God's word, but you know what? The Bible talks about creation, and, and that's been disproven, and, and blah, blah, blah. And so right away, not being very old in the Lord, I go right down that rabbit trail with this guy, and I'm arguing evolution, uh, creation to get over evolution. You know how the Lord speaks to you sometimes in your heart? It's not audibly, but it's real strong. As I'm arguing with this guy about evolution and creationism, the Lord speaks to my heart and says, Phil, even if you could convince him that evolution was absolutely false and creation was absolutely true, he's still going to hell. Keep the main thing the main thing. That's what the master right here is teaching us to do. How did Jesus handle this attempt to kind of get him off into the weeds, right? Well, he kept his concentration. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will, wor will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, guys, that is so important, that passage right there. I am not going to rush through it. In fact, we will wait until we meet next time in John's Gospel to unpack that, those verses, and carefully examine them in a study that we're going to do another topical from this passage uh, entitled True Worship. True Worship, critically important subject, especially since Jesus the Father is seeking true worshipers. But I will say this. Jesus has just revealed to this woman that true worship, listen, isn't a matter of locality, it's a matter of the heart. Keep that in mind, because we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. But listen, Jesus could have spent hours with this woman explaining, answering all of her questions. But he knew that it wasn't germane to the conversation at hand. Again, guys, don't let people get you sidetracked with non-essential, trivial, unimportant questions that steer you into the weeds and off the main road. The main road is the gospel presentation and their salvation. That's the key. That's what's important. She needed a personal relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and at that moment, that was all that mattered. But again... She tries once again to derail or deflect the conversation. Verse 25, the woman said to him, Well, I know Messiah is coming, who was called the Christ. When he comes, he, he'll tell us all things. She attempts to put everything Jesus has just said off for another time and place. This also happens frequently with people you are witnessing to. You start to get to them. You can see it in their face. Little beads of sweat begin to form. 
they're realizing they're not good people. They're not going to heaven, all right? All right? And, and, and often they get, they get so kind of shaken that they blurt out, well, well, well someday I'm going to read the Bible. So someday I'm going to go to church. I know you, good people should go to church. Well, look, that, that's all well and fine. But right now this is not about going to church or even reading the Bible. Right now the issue at hand is you getting your life right with God by accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible says today is the day of salvation because tomorrow is not promised to anybody. You might not be around in a few days to, to, to go to church or read the Bible. I'm telling you right now what you need. You know, Paul said it in 1 Corinthians, I think, imploring them to receive Christ because you're so concerned, right? And so she said, you know, I know Messiah's coming someday, okay? Okay, well, he's called Christ, and he's, he's, when he comes, he's, he's going to tell us all things. Listen to what Jesus said to her, verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak with you am he. In the Greek, guys, he literally said to her, I that speak to you, I am. That is the name of God. Check it out. Exodus 3, Moses by the burning bush. Who should I tell Pharaoh is sending me? God says, you tell Pharaoh, I am is sending you. The name of God. Guys, the final step in our evangelism is introducing this person you're witnessing to, to Jesus. The true Jesus, which I know you guys all know. I'm just talking, though, in general. There's a lot of churches that present Jesus kind of like as a uh, divine aspirin tablet to cure all the headaches of life. Or, uh, you know, an avatar or some kind of spiritual guru. This woman didn't need an avatar or a spiritual guru. She needed God. That's who she was thirsty for. And the only one who could satisfy her was the living water, the Christ, Jesus, the great I am, right? If Jesus was not the great I am, close the book, let's go home, because he's no different than Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, or any other spiritual leader that's come down the pike over the last three or 4,000 years. This, people don't need religion. That's the problem today. And they don't need church. That's why I'm against all this, uh, all this uh, uh, methodologies that are designed to drag people into church because this is where all the evangelism takes place. No, it takes place out there. You give people the impression when you, you have to come to church. No, you have to come to Christ. After you come to Christ, you go to church. But some people give people the impression, look, it's all about church. It's all about Christ. Church can't give a person eternal life. They can share the gospel, of course, but they can't give a per impart eternal life. Only Jesus can do that, right? So that then brings us to our last main point in our outline, watching the master in action as he evangelizes. And the final point is the conversion. Verse 27. And at this point the disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? You better believe they didn't say that. you imagine? Jesus, what are you doing? How dare you talk to this woman? <laughs> no, they wouldn't do that. Um, but, but they were shocked themselves. This was totally unorthodox, okay? They knew it. Verse 28, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. 
Could this be the Christ? Now, guys, somewhere between, somewhere in the white space between verses 27 and 8, she gets converted. She gets saved. How do I know that? Because, first of all, she left her water pot. What was her water pot? It was the thing that she was going to use to satisfy her thirst. Now, I'm, I'm talking allegorically. No, no. Literally, she left her water pot. But she no doubt came back for it at one point because she still needed to get water from that well to quench her physical thirst. It's interesting, though, that the Holy Spirit makes it a point to say she left her water pot because the Holy Spirit is communicating to us a spiritual truth. And that is, when a person really receives Christ, whatever they're trying to use to satisfy that thirst within, they don't need it anymore. It's discarded. It might be a career, it might be uh, money, it might be fame, whatever it might be. A lot of things that we've already said people are looking to, to fill the emptiness inside, which is a spiritual void that can only be filled with a relationship with God through Christ, right? She had Christ in her heart. She was satisfied. He said in verse 14, if you drink of the living water that I give, it'll be like a, a, a fountain bubbling up within you unto eternal life. You'll never thirst again. And the Holy Spirit is putting an exclamation point on that very truth by saying she left her water pot. She didn't need it anymore. Well, she came back and got it, but for allegorical purposes, yeah, she didn't need it anymore. And guys, once a person is truly converted, you in this room who are truly saved, you left your water pot too, didn't you? I know I did. I've talked to you about my goals and dreams and making money and having a business. Once I became a Christian, I left my water pot. I didn't need that stuff anymore. I had Christ. My whole life changed. My goals, my perspective, and so on. One commentator offered another little input as to uh, why she left her water pot. I'll read it to you. I like it. He said, and I quote, Perhaps she left her water pot out of appreciation. You have told me about my sin and my need, said the woman. You have told me about true worship. You want a cup of water? Take the whole pot. Take everything I have. It's yours. The author says, when people truly get saved, they quit asking, what can I get from God? And ask instead, what can I give to God? End quote. I like that. I think he's on to something. So we know she was saved because, first of all, she left her water pot. Secondly, she goes right out and begins to share her faith with others. A true sign of conversion. And what does she do? She runs into town to tell the men. Now she tells the men about her encounter with Christ, not the gals, because they don't like her. She knows that. She's got a better uh, rapport with the men. Okay, So she goes uh, to the men in town um, to tell them about her encounter with Christ. But listen, she's very careful about what she says to them. Yes, because of male pride, which was even worse in those days. Back in those days, men didn't believe a woman could teach them anything. She knew that, okay? So her question in verse 29, could this be the Christ, actually comes through in the Greek this way. This couldn't be the Christ, could it? See, by framing it as a question, she's letting the men think they figured out this was the Christ. Well, of course it's the Christ woman. How come you can't see that? It's a good thing we're here to tell you that. Smart gal, okay? Smart gal. She knew how to handle these guys, okay? I'll let them think they figured it out. It doesn't matter, okay? As long as they get saved, I don't care who figures it out. But notice how she started the whole process 
over again. She made contact, she created curiosity in them, and then she shared the Christ with them. And it worked. It worked. They decided to investigate this matter for themselves. Verse 30. Then they went out of the city and came to him. Verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, listen, the Savior of the world. Wow. Their theology was a lot bigger than we give them credit for. They believed he was the the Christ Messiah, but the Savior of the world. Now, we're done. And we'll come back in a couple weeks and uh, explore some of these verses again, looking at it in a different perspective. But let me just end by saying this. If this story teaches us anything, it teaches us how much God loves all people, even those who are hated, those who are rejected, those who are outcasts, those that people in society have written off, said their life is worthless, they're, they're you know, irredeemable, uh, you know, they're just, they're, they're just, they should just die because they're, they're, they're not contributing at all and so on. So a lot of people in our culture who have lived pretty rough, sinful lives to the point where even their families have written them off. And yet Jesus is always looking for them and he's using you to do it. He's using you and me to do it. To seek them out to make contact with them, to share the gospel in love, and to hopefully see them converted. This is the same offer, the same offer he made to this gal so many years ago. He's making to every one of you in this room, and I'm thinking of those who have not really made a formal commitment to Jesus Christ. I'm not saying you didn't go to church when you were a kid and get baptized and confirmed and all that stuff. I'm talking about you being old enough to make a commitment to Christ, to give him control of your life, receiving him as your Lord and Savior. If you have never done that, then you know what? This story is definitely for you because the Lord is saying he loves you. Doesn't care how you've lived your life. Doesn't care what others think about you. He's no respecter of persons. The Bible says he is the friend of sinners. The only one who can satisfy your thirsty soul and give you purpose in life. He said in chapter 7, come to me and drink. And that's the invitation he gives to all people. Doesn't matter, again, how you've lived your life or how you're living your life right now. There is time to repent and receive him. When you do, you'll know you've received him because you'll leave your water pot, whatever it is that you've been looking to satisfy the emptiness inside. And you want to tell others about him. That's how you know. Your life changes. Your goals change. Um, Everything is different. Behold, all things become brand new, Paul said. So come on back. um, Because we're going to be looking at what it means to be a true worshiper next time.
And uh, that is a subject that is extremely important. Again, the very thing Jesus the Father is seeking true worshipers. If he's seeking true worshipers, we ought to know what they are. So we'll look at that next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, how that you reached out. You're the master, Lord Jesus. How masterful to watch how you brought the gospel to this woman. Give us grace, Lord. Every situation is different. We can't really follow this every time exactly to the letter. But at least there are principles here that we can glean and use as we present the gospel. So, Lord, thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.